We want to turn tonight to John's Gospel, chapter 16, and uh, reading verses 5 to 15. And uh, again, a discourse from Jesus and this particular bit about the Holy Spirit. So John 16, at verse 5, on the work of the Holy Spirit, let's follow God's Word together. Now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I've said these things, you're filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say uh, to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open up your word to us tonight and enable us to understand and to hear and to seek to respond in the way that you would have us respond. To your glory, to your name's sake, we pray. Amen. I guess that we have, as Christians in the Judeo-Christian uh, uh, culture, we have inherited, if you want to call it, a Jewish monotheism, the belief that God is one God. Uh, and uh, I, I'd like to think that over the years I have preached with some theology behind the preaching, but maybe not being very heavily into theology in a way that's above people's heads. But I think when we want to come to understand the teaching of Jesus about the Holy Spirit, when we want to understand his operation in our life, we do definitely need a bit of theology. And sometimes people get a little bit confused when they talk about the monotheism of the Old Testament and then the teaching of the New Testament and the Trinitarian doctrine of this one God, distinct in three knowable persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it can be argued that the doctrine of the Trinity is implicit in the Old Testament. If you cast your minds back to Genesis 1, chapter 2, you read, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So however we understand that, the Bible is saying that it isn't just God the Father, but God the Spirit who is involved in and present at creation. And then, of course, if you look to the New Testament, Paul talks about Christ and his place in the creation of the world. Implicit in the Old Testament is the Trinity of God. Then in Genesis 1 and 26, God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. 
Now, if this was before human beings populated the earth, to whom was God referring? Surely not to angels, for then they would be placed on the same level as God. He must have been referring to himself when he said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And in spite of this implicit suggestion of the Trinity here and elsewhere in the Old Testament, the way that God seemed to have chosen to reveal himself to Israel was very much as the one God, and we'll come to that in a minute. You see, the world of the believers in Old Testament times was a world that was inhabited by many different gods that had to be worshipped and appeased. Yet to Israel came the revelation that God was not the many gods of the world they inhabited, but one, a personal God, infinite, eternal, glorious, majestic, holy, wise, good, and loving towards all he had made. And the Israelites were even given by God a name for him that was always to remind them that he was God, that he was the one who had chosen them to have a unique relationship with him as his people and to whom he could be uh, deeply committed. That name was Yahweh, a name so holy that in Jesus' time the Jews wouldn't write it out in full. It's the name sometimes translated in the Old Testament as Jehovah, and which in our Bibles is normally translated as the Lord. To illustrate this, look with me at Deuteronomy 6 and verses 4 and 5. This famous call uh, to worship that the Jews would have been more and more familiar with and still are today. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Literally, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Love the Lord, or love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This was the great call to Jewish people to worship. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh, this holy, magnificent, powerful God, the Lord is one. Why is that significant? Well, I think it's significant because it reminds us that God is not everything. Uh, there are those in the world who subscribe to a theology you might describe as pantheism, that God is in everything, and that's not the way God is revealed in the Old Testament. He is not as try as some people try to call him the divine spark within us, nor is he the chief of gods or the sum of all other gods. He is unique, but he is also personal. He is also the God who does not live alone. He is, as I said earlier, a God who exists in Trinity. And if this doctrine was just implicit in the Old Testament, there is a revelation of God as Trinity that comes from the highest authority, Jesus himself. Remember what he told the disciples, what we're looking at this morning in Matthew 28 and 18 to 20. I think these verses are so critical and crucial for the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, so let me, if you don't mind, read them again. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth. Here is Jesus claiming his authority as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods. He is God incarnate. 
And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Here is the highest authority. Here is Jesus saying, all authority is given to me. I am God. I am the one. And he says that in this last will and testament I mentioned this morning that's given to the church, I am the Son, I am praying that you will go in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach the world everything that I command of you. So this is this revelation of God that comes from Jesus himself. He is God who is one God but in three persons, Trinity. And I think that's so important if you were uh, not out this morning. I hope you maybe this evening picked up one of these, our new vision document 2020 uh, that, that takes us over the next number of years. And the inspiration at the front of that are these verses that we've just read from Matthew 28, 19, and 20. This is who we are as God's people. We believe in a Trinitarian God. That's our inspiration, our belief in that Trinitarian God who says, go into all the world, preaching the gospel, baptizing the nations, bringing your neighbors to Jesus, bringing those who live locally and those who live globally into the family of God. In other words, Jesus was saying that the nations would come to know the one and only true God, not as Yahweh, the name revealed to the Israelites, but they would come to know God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I suppose in the Old Testament, it had been necessary to emphasize the oneness of God and the uniqueness of God over and against all the other gods that are worshipped. But now this further revelation of God is made by none other than the unique Son of God and says that within the oneness of God is the threeness, if you like, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't profess to understand that. When I was a child in school, my RE teacher, Charlie Presho, uh, uh, brought in a, a shamrock one time, and he, he pointed to the leaf, uh, the three leaves of the shamrock uh, and the single stem, and he said, this is like God, the single stem, but three distinct leaves, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No analogy is perfect because there is a mystery in the Trinity something we find very hard to understand, but something we believe because it's been revealed to us by God and by Jesus himself. So let's go to a little bit of what John recorded as the teaching of Jesus. When you uh, begin into looking at, through the New Testament, you find that the doctrine of the Trinity pops up all over the place. Look with me for just one example, John 15 and verse 26. And this is part of the longer discourse of Jesus to the disciples about the Holy Spirit. He says, when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So when you look at verses like that, and you can discover them all over the New Testament, you discover that there's the three persons of the Trinity are being talked about with different roles, different responsibilities, but the one God working in an expression of three people. 
And of course, the passage that we read earlier in John chapter 16, Jesus speaks of returning to the Father and sending the Counselor or the Holy Spirit to be with us, to lead us into all truth. And so I want to concentrate in the next few minutes on this question of the Holy Spirit as Jesus taught him to be understood by you and by me. In fact, Jesus taught that we could call God by a very personal term. He said, you can call God Abba. And that may not mean much to us, but you've heard me say many times and other preachers as well that in Hebrew, the the Jewish people, if they used the word Abba, they were using a very personal term for Father. It, It would be like we would say today, Dad or Daddy. Uh, And this indeed scandalized the Jews that God should be revealed through Jesus as one whom his people could call Abba, Father. Uh, And indeed, I think uh, quite rightly so, actually, we feel uncomfortable if our praying was to say, Daddy, we come to you tonight. We'd feel it's lacking respect and reverence for God. But Jesus said, you can know God as Abba, as your Father, in that very personal and very real way. It's relatively easy for us to imagine Jesus as personal. We've maybe seen pictures of him uh, uh, portrayed in films or in books, and always with a beard and longer hair and so forth. And, uh, and, and we can imagine the teaching of Jesus, the things that Jesus did. It's very easy to look on him as personal. It's very easy, perhaps, to think of God the Father as personal because most, if not all of us, have experience of a heavenly or an earthly Father, and so the heavenly Father we can maybe link in with. But when it comes to spirit, we very often go a little bit off beam, and we sometimes think of the spirit as the force may the force be with you. We sometimes hear people speaking of the Holy Spirit and say, when it comes upon you, uh, and he is not an it, he is a person, the third person of the Trinity. Uh, And so some of the images for the Spirit in the Bible actually don't help us in that personal way because he's spoken of like wind or fire or the breath of God uh, or the river of life. And they don't always tend to lead us thinking of the Holy Spirit in personal terms. And so what I I want you to do with me is just run through a number of verses of Scripture. Hopefully it will come up on screen and we're going to to go through. I I, I quite deliberately choose lots of verses sometimes because I, I think when I'm trying to preach something like this, it's so important that Scripture interprets Scripture. So the first one I want us to consider is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 10 and 11. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. This is what is said of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, if you have that verse open either in your own Bible or it's on screen, just look at it with me again because there's some things to really take note of. Uh, Here, Jesus, or, or rather Paul in Corinthians, saying, the Holy Spirit knows the mind of our Heavenly Father. 
Uh, so he's personal. He's able to know the mind of the Father. The Spirit, you see in your Bible when Spirit has a capital S, it's referring to the Holy Spirit. Searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except a man's spirit in small s? That means you and me and in our hearts and in ourselves. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the capital S, the Spirit of God. In other words, you and I know the internal conversations we have that maybe nobody else ever has access to. Nobody ever knows what we're really thinking. And Jesus says that just as you have that inner voice, knowing and understanding and talking and debating about who you are as a person, what you're doing, just in that same way, the Holy Spirit, as a person, searches the mind and the will of the Father. And then, because the Holy Spirit is also equal with God, we understand that the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. Uh, And uh, we find that in Romans chapter 8 and verses 26 uh, to 27. So let's uh, read that. And I I love these verses. I think they're some of the most helpful to us. Uh, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We We do not know what we ought to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans and wor- that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. I, I find that lovely. I don't know about you, but in all my years, 57 years of being a follower of Jesus, I do not yet consider myself to be an expert prayer. I, I don't know about you, but I, I find that my prayers are so often repetitive, that they're so often lacking in depth. I find Who can find the words that adequately praise God? Who can find the words that adequately bring to God what's on our hearts? And here we have Paul writing to the Romans and saying, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray or what to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us, groans that words cannot express. And I kind of think sometimes the Spirit of God is going to the Heavenly Father and he's, he's looking at the wreckage of Ken's life and he's just saying to God, oh, uh, and God knows what he's talking about and what he means. See, groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. God who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit himself intercedes for us in accordance with God's will. You don't know how to pray? The Holy Spirit knows how to pray. You don't know what to pray for? The Holy Spirit knows what to pray for. You find that your words are sometimes stumbling and and impoverished and meaningless? The Holy Spirit translates them into the throne room of heaven, and God knows what's going on in your life and what's going on in my heart and in your mind and mine, uh, and the Spirit interprets that and brings it to the Father. The Father knows the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit prays for us. I think that's amazing and wonderful. He is certainly not a force, certainly not an it. He is a person who searches our hearts, and the Father knows his mind. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and uh, verses, uh, uh, verse 13 uh, is another passage that 
speaks to us that the Spirit teaches believers the gospel. First uh, uh, Corinthians 2 and verse 13. Let's read that. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. How do we explain the gospel? How do we understand the gospel? The Spirit helps us and teaches us what the gospel is and what it means and how it can be explained to others. And then the Apostle Paul tells us the Holy Spirit desires godly virtues in us. Galatians 5 and verse 17, this is what he said, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. He's not called the Holy Spirit for nothing. The sinful nature desires what's contrary to the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. Everything that is of the Spirit of God is contrary to that sinful nature that is part and parcel of our lives. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Uh, And so Paul says, it is God who helps us by the Holy Spirit to bring godly virtues into our lives. But here's the thing, I don't know how often you've thought about it. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be hurt. The Holy Spirit can be disappointed by our sin. Ephesians 4 and uh, verse 30. And, And here's the instruction of Paul, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I guess we all let other people down, and all of us are sometimes let down by others. And when you're let down by somebody, you feel a real heartburn, don't you? You feel a real sense of this is really difficult. I've been let down by someone I looked up to, I valued, I trusted. Uh, and you feel that when you're let down, you're never going to be able to trust that person again. It's true to say that the Holy Spirit can be grieved by our sin. He's person. He's real. He, he loves us. He is concerned for us. He's praying for us. He's bringing our prayers to the throne of God. He's interpreting our, our, our stumbling words, and he's, he's on our side. But when we walk astray from God, he's grieved by our sin. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important to come to God with repentance and with trust that God will choose to remember our sins no more. And then going back to what we read earlier, Romans 8 and uh, 15, and 16. uh, The Spirit cries with our spirits to the Father. But here's a slightly different slant, Roman 8 and 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship or daughtership. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And there's another Trinitarian reference if you look there and through uh, to the next verse or two. How amazing that the Spirit cries with our our spirits to the Father and testifies that we are God's children. 
when you know that you belong to Jesus, when you know that God is your heavenly Father, it is the Holy Spirit who is enabling you to know that. So in every way, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Let me quote from a a little book I'd love to recommend to you. I don't think it's in the church library, but Robin Parry uh, wrote a book some years ago called Worshipping Trinity. And uh, in this book, he writes this, uh, and most of what I'm going to quote is actually a a quotation from uh, A.W. Tozer. But he writes this, The Spirit will continue the mission of Jesus through the church. He is, in the words of Gordon Fee, God's empowering presence. A.W. Tozer said, Spell this out in capital letters. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is not enthusiasm. He is not courage. He is not energy. He is not the personification of all good qualities, like Jack Frost is the personification of cold weather. Actually, the Holy Spirit is not the personification of anything. He has individuality. He is one being and not another. He has will and intelligence. He has hearing. He has knowledge and sympathy and the ability to love and see and think. He can hear, speak, desire, grieve, and rejoice. He is a person. And then back to Robin Parry. The Spirit is indeed often experienced as life-transforming power. But the one who so transforms us is personal, and we honor him by recognizing this in inverted commas, shy member of the Trinity as a personal power through whom we also experience the presence of the Father and of the Son. I want to get to experience in just a a, a little while, but let me me run through very quickly. Uh, You may wonder, I haven't gone to the passage that we read right at the start, and uh, if you're worried that I'm going to go on too long tonight, I promise you'll be home by midnight. But let's just think of some of the things that Jesus said in the verses that we read from uh, John chapter 16, 5 to 15. Here's the first thing. Jesus said, he is the counselor. Uh, And uh, that comes up on uh, screen for you. I'll not read it. But he is according to what Jesus says, the Greek word is parakletos. Uh, And we thought about this in the Paraclesis course recently. The one who comes alongside us, like an advocate or a legal assistant, or maybe like a tugboat coming alongside the big boat, helping it in and out of harbor. He is, if you like, the divine helper who enables us to put our faith into practice. He is the one who comes alongside us and walks with us into work in the morning. He's the one who comes alongside us and walks with us back into that home that is difficult or that home that is happy. He comes alongside us and walks with us into the good places and into the bad places that that, that do us harm and damage. He is the one who walks alongside in every experience of life. He is the counselor, the one who's able to give us wisdom and to advise us and to help us and to teach us. He is uh, Jesus, the counselor. In verses 8 to 11, uh, in the passage we read earlier, uh, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Let me read verses 8 to 11, if I may. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. 
in regard to sin because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. He is the one who convicts of sin, who stirs our consciences and turns us away from ourselves to God, throwing ourselves upon God's mercy. He is the Holy Spirit who will shine the light of truth and holiness into our hearts. He is the one who will expose in us sin and wrongdoing, unworthy attitudes and wrong attitudes. But always he will work with the desire to point us to the Redeemer who takes away the sins of the world and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He convicts us of sin. And he has said, Jesus, verse 13, the spirit of truth. Uh, and uh, the first part of verse 13, he reveals him to be uh, this, the spirit of truth is what Jesus says. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Why does Jesus call him the spirit of truth? In the first century Palestine uh, that Jesus lived in, uh, the, the, the people were thinking of the world being split up into two opposing spirits, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Uh, and they had this kind of dualistic world that they inhabited, uh, and maybe they felt that, that one side was as strong as the other, and it just depended maybe even sometimes on good fortune whether you ended up with the spirit of error dominating your life or the spirit of truth. Well, Jesus says, I don't believe in this dualistic world that some of you inhabit. He says, I believe that my spirit who will come to you is the spirit of truth. As Francis Schaeffer, the Christian philosophy, said, true truth. In a world of alternative facts, in a world of dissemination of what is good and, and true and right, in a world in which uh, we are told in, in the, the, the personalization of our, our world that truth is what you make it, Jesus, who said, I am the way and the truth, and the life says, the spirit that I leave with you, that I will send to you, he is the spirit of truth. So everything of the Holy Spirit is the truth of God. And therefore, we need to be very careful as we study and understand the work of the Spirit that we don't say things about Him that are untrue because He is the Spirit of truth, objective, absolute truth in Himself. And because of that, Jesus goes on in the second half of verse 13 to say that He teaches us the truth. And that's a lovely thing. He will guide you into all truth. He is God, and therefore that which is of the spirit of truth teaches and guides us how to live for God in this world and for Jesus. And the final thing I want to say is this. He brings glory to Jesus. Verse 14 of John chapter 16. Jesus says, He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. That lovely. 
He will take what is mine, said Jesus, and make it known to you, and he will bring glory to me. His overriding purpose in life is to point us to Jesus. His overriding purpose in life is to glorify Christ. His overriding purpose in in life is to exalt Jesus above all other things in this world. So what about your life and mine? Is Jesus at work by his Spirit? And what about the things that people claim to do in the name of Jesus or in the name of his church? Do we ask ourselves the questions, is this a right work and a true work of the Holy Spirit, and how do we know it is? Well, what place does it give to Jesus? Is he honored or glorified? Does Jesus get the glory? If not, then it's hardly possible that it's a work of the Holy Spirit. He brings glory to Jesus. As we finish this evening, I want us just to pray and hopefully respond to to what has been said, because I think what I've given you is the theology, but not so much of the experience. And maybe we need just time to reflect upon that and to ask God to bring into our lives that sense of the experience of the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's pray. Let's pray. And as we bow our heads in God's presence, let us acknowledge that God is present here by his Holy Spirit. None of us can actually be a Christian unless the Holy Spirit of God lives within us. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, literally from above or of the Spirit. And every Christian who is genuinely a Christian has the Holy Spirit living in them. And as we pray, I want you to imagine, if you would, bear with me, that your life is like a house. And in the house, you may live in a bungalow or you may have a two-story house or maybe even three stories, but in the house, there's a roof space. And in the roof space, you maybe have a lot of things that you really wouldn't put on public show. Uh, maybe they're old and dusty and broken, and but maybe there's some things hidden there for a purpose that you'd be embarrassed or ashamed of somebody else seeing them. And so when we say, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit, when it comes to the house of our lives, could we please start with the roof space. And Lord, we come tonight to ask, come Holy Spirit, fill me and each one of us, but start in that roof space. Start, Lord, amongst the junk and the broken stuff and maybe some of the stuff we've hidden because we're a bit embarrassed about it. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill me from head to toes, beginning in the roof space. And maybe as we go down through the house, assuming, say, that most of us live in a two-story house, maybe that first floor of the house, the bedrooms and the bathroom, we say, Lord, come fill me with your Holy Spirit, but what goes on upstairs that 
we would never allow people downstairs to see. What are the things that are hidden in our drawers or in our rooms or the books that we had that we wouldn't put in public display, the things that we are maybe just that bit embarrassed about? We say, come, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. We've got to give up not only the roof space, but the first floor as well. And as we come downstairs into the public rooms, the, maybe, maybe some of us keep a room that's nice and tidy and neat for visitors, and the, the back room's a bit of a mess or whatever, but it's where we live and eat and share with the family and watch our TVs. And we say, come, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. But what about the things that we allow into our lives through literature and television and DVD? Are there things that we really shouldn't be involved in or doing? Or when people come in, is our conversation never about Jesus and What kind of jokes do we listen to and what kind of things do we say? And we say, Lord, come and fill our lives with your Holy Spirit who convicts people of sin, who puts a searchlight on those parts of our homes, parts of our lives that are really not for public consumption. And and maybe you need to ask God to deal with those things. Because if we say, come, fill us with your Holy Spirit, we're not asking for the ground floor or for the public rooms or or for all of the house except the roof space. We're asking for the Lord to come and fill us from head to toe with his Holy Spirit. And so what I want to just do for a very short time is to say to you, Let us pray together, come Holy Spirit. And in the silence of when I say those words again, perhaps you need to think of your roof space or your bedrooms or your upstairs rooms or your ground floor, your public rooms, and you need to say, in terms of what that relates to in your life, if God the Holy Spirit puts a searchlight on something, would you determine to make it right with God? Because there's no point saying, fill me with your Holy Spirit. If we say to God, you can have every room in the house apart from the roof space or every room in the house apart from the study or the lounge, uh, there's no point in that. You can't say, fill me, and then say, we bar you, Lord, from this part of our lives. So, can I encourage you to offer your whole life to God now and to say, come, Holy Spirit. And in saying, come, Holy Spirit, trust that no matter what you feel, He will come and fill your heart and your life afresh with His love and His power and his presence, and his hope, and his healing, and the affirmation of love. So in the silence, come, 
Holy Spirit. And as we thought this morning, the Apostle Paul told the Ephesian Christians, be filled with the Spirit, not to get drunk on wine, but to drink rather instead of the thing that makes us drunk in this world, drink lots and lots and lots of the Spirit of God. So, Heavenly Father, we say, come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill this church with your Holy Spirit. Fill this land with your Holy Spirit, that we and our church and our land may give glory to Jesus, glory to his wonderful name. And may it be our prayer, not once, but daily, come, Holy Spirit. Amen.